The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody. A cordial welcome to all of you. My name is Dr. Clemens Rutner, and I'm the director of research with the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies at Trinity College Dublin. I'm hosting this wonderful research seminar uh, every fortnight. And today, our speaker is Michal Hoyn. Uh, he is an assistant professor who joined. Uh, Trinity recently in January um, with the Irish department, and uh, he is going to uh, give us a, a talk about Trinity College, proper Irish and printing in the Irish language, 1602 to 1685. Michal, you're very welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Clements. So I have set myself three tasks for today. The first is to introduce a publication I worked on for a number of years that appeared in 2020 uh, with uh, my colleague, sadly deceased, uh, Richard Sharp, called Clolista. And as part of that, to talk a little about the concept of narrative bibliography. The second task then is to give you a brief history of efforts to translate and print the Bible in Irish. And finally, to say a few words about linguistic research that I currently have in hand and some ideas for the future arising out of an investigation of the history of the translation of the Bible into Irish and efforts to print it. So firstly, um, uh, Clolista, um, which appeared in December 2020, it was the brainchild of Richard Sharp, who sadly did not live to see it in print. He died suddenly on the 21st of March 2020, just at the beginning of the first lockdown. And he conceived the idea of a discursive catalogue describing everything printed in or indeed about the Irish language from the first appearance of the Irish language in print down. Eventually, we settled on the date 1871. To begin with, I'd like to say a word about uh, uh, Richard Sharp, as uh, he, he hasn't uh, had a chance to uh, um, experience the reception that Clothes has received and uh, some of the things that have resulted from it. Um, he was a proud Yorkshireman, though uh, I learned recently he was actually technically born in Lancashire. He was trained in classics and in Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic in Cambridge. He was an incredibly productive scholar, an intimidatingly productive scholar. Uh, he published a two-volume history of the island of Raze uh, on the east coast of the Isle of Skye, the first volume of which appeared while he was still an undergraduate. And at last count, he had more than 214 publications in print. He spent years uh, working on the Dictionary of Medieval Latin from British sources before becoming reader and then professor of diplomatic in Oxford. And diplomatic, the academic discipline, has nothing to do with diplomacy as, as, as we understand it, but is the, the study of charters and other contemporary documents. Richard was an extremely uh, wide ranging and prolific scholar. 
uh, not just in Irish studies, but in uh, other medieval and early modern disciplines as well. In Irish studies, he was a noted authority on saints' lives, on medieval brigandage, uh, on the origin and the organisation of the medieval Irish church. Um, some of you may be familiar with his uh, Penguin translation of uh, Adhavdon's Life of uh, Colum Killa. He was increasingly drawn to areas where more work was to be done, where there was still coal-faced primary research uh, everywhere you looked. And it was that temptation that led him increasingly to take an interest in early modern Ireland, starting with early modern Irish manuscripts. Um, Richard had a particular interest in how manuscript collections formed in how, in the case of Ireland, manuscripts moved, for example, from the traditional learned families that dominated the production of literature in the Middle Ages and the early modern period into the hands of private collectors in the 18th and 19th centuries, and eventually made their way into the comparative safety of institutional libraries like the Royal Irish Academy or uh, our own uh, Trinity Library. He lectured indeed extensively on that topic in Dublin, and he was an authority indeed on the formation of the Trinity manuscripts and lectured in the Long Room Hub uh, on the formation of the Trinity collection. Um, he paid particular attention eventually to print, uh, noting that Irish studies has tended to focus more on manuscripts than on print heritage. And uh, he is one of very few scholars really to give the print tradition their due and uh, his work helped expose the, the vibrant history of Irish in print and indeed the complex life of the Irish language in print from the 16th century onwards. This research challenged notions about literacy in Irish, the dominance of, of uh, manuscripts in, in Irish literacy, and indeed sh shed light on the place of the Irish language more broadly in Irish history and society in the pre-modern period. So, Together, we published this book, Clolista. As I said, Richard had a special interest in 19th century manuscript catalogues, in 19th century manuscript sales, as part of the history of the formation of the big collections of manuscripts held today in Trinity and the Academy and so on. And while he was combing through these sales catalogues, he stumbled across references to printed works uh, being sold as part of collections of manuscripts and rare material. And often the catalogues would contain information about a certain book being rare or very valuable or having annotations by a noted scholar. And he, first of all, wanted to identify these books, but he began to wonder, where could I keep this information? Having found it in an unusual place, the sort of source many scholars aren't likely to consult, where was he going to put it to keep that information safe? And eventually he formed the idea of having a chronological list and using this chronological list of printing in Irish to store that information. And this project just grew and grew and grew until it became a full catalogue of everything printed in Irish in this period. He wanted to know what was published in Irish, by whom, where, how often, how many editions were there, what was the size of the print run, do copies survive, and if they survive, where, what were the sources behind printed works, for example, if editing a manuscript? And on the other hand, do, does printed material go into manuscripts? Do we find manuscript copies of printed material? Looking around, he found that there were no bibliographies that quite fit the bill. So he decided, well, he'd have to do a bibliography himself. And in 2017, he recruited me to do it. It's more 
than an index and it was conceived of as more than an index or a finding list. Richard was a great believer in narrative uh, bibliography. That is the idea that you should tell the story of printing chronologically and do more than simply give the bare details of, of, of books. Try and tell each individual item's story, who the author was, the sources, who the printer was, whether the printer was active. And then by placing that in a chronological framework, form a picture of the overall profile of the Irish language and print at a particular moment and as it changed over time. And that's what he meant by narrative bibliography. So the entire book comes to about 1300 pages, so it's not short. Uh, we have 1571 as our starting point on the cover, because officially, if you like, that's when printing in Irish in Ireland begins. But we did allow ourselves a little leeway. The actual first appearance of the Irish language in print that we know about is in a sort of travel book published in the 1540s. The first edition is probably 1542 by Andrew Board, his first book of the introduction of knowledge. They really knew how to name them back then. Um, uh, written by a well-traveled English physician, he devotes a chapter to the countries of Europe. He begins with a sort of a poem which he pretends to be from that country, and then has a description of their customs, their money, and their language, and gives a few sort of helpful phrases, uh, including for Irish, the, the third chapter, uh, deals with Irish. You can see there it begins with a, a picture of the obviously bellicose Irishman holding his big uh, um, arrow and the lady rooting through his hair, presumably looking for creatures that are living in it. I think there's a it's not entirely a flattering portrayal of the, the Irishman here. Uh, he begins his poem, you know, uh, I am an Irish man in Ireland. I was born. I love to wear a saffron shirt, although it be too torn. Uh, which isn't exactly Heaney. Um, he then at the end of this chapter gives phrases in Irish in English orthography and in the black letter that the book was published in. So wife, uh, have you any good uh, meat? Benity will be a magot. Man, give me wine. Farity turfin. Maiden, give me cheese. Kaleen turkosh. Just an interesting insight into the Irish language as used in a in the hospitality sector in uh, the 1540s. We stop in 1871, at least officially, uh, partly for practical reasons. As I say, the book had already grown to, we knew it was getting big, it, as published as 1300 pages, and we just had to stop somewhere. Uh, there's also a sense as we as we went on that we were getting into the modern revival of the language and that, as it were, the, the character of the language in print was changing, the sheer amount of material being printed was increasing, and it was better to leave that job to somebody else. 1871 also had a nice landmark for Celticists like myself, the publication of the second edition of Johann Caspar Zeus's Grammatica Celtica. The first edition appeared in 1853 and is foundational in the discipline of Irish philology, essentially establishing the modern if you like, scientific study of the Irish language. So I was quite happy to have 1871 as uh, the cutoff point and a nice neat 1571, 1871 on the cover. So in the end, we actually allowed ourselves to go a little further and include uh, as an addendum, uh, 1873, an illicit edition of Brian Merriman's Court of Arnihe, the Midnight Court, uh, with a title page 
in Latin and a fake date of publication. Uh, as those of you familiar with Merriman's poem will know, it's a little bit bawdy, a little bit racy. Uh, so the publisher decided with a few in-jokes on the cover uh, to, to, to publish this edition, but not have it directly associated with himself by putting a fake date and not, as it were, admitting to it. But we know that 1873 was the real date because the proofs survive in the National Library with that date on them. So uh, uh, Richard was quite proud of the uh, work he put into that. And this was the final entry in, in Clolis. Um, there are um, in total 1,026 entries in this uh, bibliography, but not all are, are books. Uh, some are, are other um, appearances of the Irish language in print. For example, this is the first known appearance of the Irish language in a newspaper, uh, well, the first known appearance to us anyway, uh, in the Dublin Chronicle in 1815, a poem in Irish praising Daniel O'Connell, but also advising him there had been controversy. He had been arrested in order to prevent him participating in a duel. And the poet uh, tells Daniel O'Connell that he's too valuable to Ireland to risk his life. And a great deal of space was given over to this controversy in the Dublin Chronicle, a paper closely associated with O'Connell. And the editor felt the need to uh, uh, print this poem in Irish, which they received, uh, along with a, a translation into, into English. I should also note that not all entries in Clolista are actually extant, uh, not all of them uh, exist to this day. For example, uh, we know that a proclamation against Aonel, uh, the Earl of uh, Tyrone, was published in 1595 bilingually in Irish and English. We know this because of references in the state papers to it being published in both Irish and English, but no copy has actually come down. But since we have positive evidence that we existed, it is a part of the story in Irish and print, and therefore it earns an entry in this, uh, uh, in this text. Um, as I say, the intention from the beginning in this book was to tell the story of printing in Irish from beginning to end, to tell it chronologically. There are other options available. For example, there's a, a major bibliography of printing in Welsh. Um, that is, as it were, a giant first line index done alphabetically. And the result is that this book is essentially an index to itself, right? You can't identify any stories. You can't follow themes as they develop or disappear. You can't see the changing profile of the language in print. You can't see certain printers coming into the market and leaving, certain writers becoming active and leaving, because you have to know this information already to look it all up. Uh, so it's a, an example of uh, a, a different, a valuable resource as it is, but it's not, it, it's a very much a different approach. It doesn't, it's not this narrative approach that we pursued. So the information given in Clovelista is quite extensive. Uh, details of what you'll find on the title page, dimensions, the printer, the different types of Gaelic fonts that were used, description of contents, location of copies, manuscript copies, and so on. It was three years work, complicated, of course, by the pandemic and the closing of libraries, but a real tribute to cooperation between scholars and librarians, because without the wonderful librarians and the knowledgeable librarians of places like the National Library of Ireland, the Royal Irish Academy, and of course, Trinity, it simply couldn't have been accomplished. And it's very gratifying to see the librarians of Ireland continuing to support Clovis and indeed uh, make use of it, 
the National Library of Ireland has begun a process of digitizing Ireland's the Irish language's print heritage. They've been using Clolist as their guide in what to digitize and in providing information for that project so that these texts will be available to anybody anywhere in the world. So I mentioned the advantage of narrative bibliography of being able to follow certain trends. And one of the, the um, I suppose, threads that runs through the story of printing in Irish is the Bible, efforts to translate it, to print it, to reprint it, to edit it and re-edit it. And I, we would like to think having presented Clothis in this chronological way, we are inviting scholars to follow threads like this, to see them through and to see them as part of a wider tapestry, and perhaps to investigate these stories on a bigger scale than has been done so far. One of the brilliant uh, pioneering works of scholarship on uh, printing in the Irish language, and in particular on Protestant printing in the Irish language, is Nicholas Williams' book, Ibrunta Iliaur, um, which uh, is a phenomenal work of scholarship, uh, taking the story from 1567 down to 1724. Recently, I have been working on register in early printed books in, in Irish, the linguistic choices that were made, the attempts made by uh, Protestant scholars to find the right Irish, in particular for printing the, the uh, uh, Bible in Irish, um, what decisions they made when it comes to grammar and syntax and style, and also the limitations they were under, um, the difficulties they had in attempting to uh, create and then adhere um, to a particular register. And it's about that that I'd like to talk today, and in particular about the New Testament, though we'll, we'll say a little bit about the Old Testament. So in 1563, Queen Elizabeth I gave Irish bishops 100 marks for the making of character to print the New Testament in Irish. One of the bishops she gave money to was the Archbishop of Armagh, a Yorkshireman, Adam Loftus, who would go on to be the first provost of Trinity College. And that should be the beginning of the story, but almost nothing happens. Uh, Elizabeth was clearly concerned with getting the Bible into the vernacular, uh, spreading the reformed faith in Ireland, and of course, extending state power by uh, extending the state religion. But by 1567, uh, she was reduced to threatening to demand repayment of the money because nothing had happened. In the meantime, a rival Protestant tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, uh, in, in the uh, Western Isles of Scotland, had uh, stolen a march and published the first uh, book in Irish, John Carswell's uh, Forum the Nernia. This is the first book in Irish, although, as I say, it was published in Scotland and it was uh, uh, translated by a, a Scotsman. It's a translation of Knox's uh, form of prayers and ministrations of the sacraments designed for use in the Western Isles of Scotland. But it's written in the early modern Irish literary register that was the common property of the Gaelic people speaking, the Gaelic speaking people of Ireland and of uh, Scotland. Uh, John Carswell in his prefatory letters reveals he's fully aware that he's breaking new ground, he's doing something new uh, in the Irish language. He actually mentions, you don't have to read all this text, but I'll put it there. Uh, he mentions the, the, the particular need of the Bible in Irish, like you have the Bible in Latin or you have the Bible in English. 
Um, and interestingly, as a, as a sort of a humanist scholar, he also mentions the need to have traditional Irish historical lore, Shanachas, uh, printed in the Irish language. And although Carswell has something of a reputation for being a bit doer, for being a, a, a rather contrary uh, reformer, he clearly had a humanist outlook and was himself quite versed in traditional manuscript uh, literature. Uh, indeed, his, his style uh, shows his indebtedness to the sort of early modern Irish prose tales you'll encounter in contemporary manuscripts, right down to what are essentially direct quotations, including one line, a formula he's borrowed from Agal of Nishanor, the famous story of, or the meta story of uh, uh, the Fianna. Um, he even cites bardic poems. Uh, again, anybody familiar with medieval art history will know uh, that bardic poets very much dominated the, the production of literature in Irish. They were the literary elite. Uh, they composed extremely uh, difficult poems in rigid meters, and they had developed a prestigious register described in extremely sophisticated linguistic tracts that represented, if you like, the gold standard. Uh, when it came to writing good and correct Irish. Carswell doesn't quite get to that standard, and indeed he may not have intended to, he might have he probably intended something a little more colloquial, uh, but he's clearly familiar with these uh, kinds of texts and comfortable imitating them for his, for his own purposes when it suits. But he, he's ostentatiously humble about his own qualifications in the language and emphasizes that he's producing a, a simple uh, uh, book in a simple style. Um, he refers to you know, the, the, the correct usage of Irish. And interestingly, he says, very few people can do it, even in Ireland. Very few people really know how to write correct Irish. And he actually claims that he only has the same sort of Irish that the common people have when they're writing, uh, which suggests there must have been a high level of literacy if the, the Irish he says he's writing is what a common person might learn. We don't think of that level of, of literacy in the 16th century, but first of all, we have Carswell's testimony that, okay, allowing for a certain amount of exaggeration, that he, he isn't particularly well-trained in the Irish language, but the common people had access to some training. But we also, the fact that he bothered to print this book at all, he assumes a readership. He assumes there will be people there to use it. And they're hardly all going to be you know, professional men of learning, bardic poets, representatives of the hereditary learned families that dominated, uh, if you like, the manuscript tradition. It's a very mature product, the, the first book in Irish. It's also very book-like, which sounds very obvious, but given that it was the first book in Irish, it has headings, it has catchwords, which you don't get in manuscripts this early to my knowledge anyway. So it very much shows that they were familiar with what a, what a book should look like. And that's quite a mature, you know, first attempt at, at printing in the Irish language. The style is also very vernacular. There doesn't seem to be a big breach between Irish moving from, uh, if you like, manuscript to print. Um, parts of it are really reminiscent of uh, contemporary prose tales, in particular the really bombastic dedication to Carswell's patron, the Earl of Argyle, uh, which is filled with a long alliterative phrases. This is the top of the, the slide you can see here. Good 
That's the sort of thing you meet a lot in contemporary prose tales. And Carson was perfectly comfortable using it, but he's also able to control it in the parts of his book that are designed as a simple catechism for children. He leaves all that aside and he writes very simply. It's a very mature work by a scholar in command of style and register. Um, and many of his, his um, uh, phrases, as I say, formally, are the kind you would encounter in, in, in uh, uh, prose texts. And he can use them to great effect. The, the formula X darab covanum uh, Y, right? X, which is also called Y, is the kind of thing you meet in Fenian prose tales of the period, the stories of Fionn McCool and so on. And Carswell uses it very cleverly on the cover when he calls himself Minister of the Church of God, right, in the Western Isles who is also known as Bishop of the Isles. Now, as a Presbyterian, uh, uh, Carswell shouldn't have been a bishop at all. And it was quite controversial when he allowed himself to be made a bishop. And he uses that nice native formula to sort of suggest that being a bishop is no more than being a minister of the Church of God. You know, don't read too much into it. It's very clever. He also does something very strange, again, on the cover, uh, with the imprint uh, declaring it was you know, printed in Edinburgh. He says, Dune age and Darab Kovanam Dune Money. Edinburgh, also known as Dune Money. Now, I have no other example of Edinburgh, Dune age in, in, in Irish or Scots Gaelic, being called Dune Money. And normally, Dune Money is, is uh, identified as uh, Dunstaffage, uh, or Dunstaffage, I should say, Dunstaffage Castle, uh, again in, in the west of Scotland. Um, now, the place named Dun Money does occur in Agalov Nishanoroch as, as a place, you know, in Scotland or imagined to be in Scotland. And sometimes you get the impression that that Cars uh, uh, was almost using formula like this to make this whole uh, Protestant effort more Gaelic. You know, he even claims in the cover to be transitioned from both English and Latin, even though we know it was almost certainly only translated from the English. But the theory behind his, his claim to publish in Latin is that he was trying to downplay the English, downplay the, the non-Gaelic aspect of his work and really make it seem vernacular and native. And these sort of formulae may be part of that, that strategy. Now, the first printed printing in Irish in Ireland occurred in 1571. Uh, the, the first item was probably this broadsheet uh, published just up the road uh, in Bridgefoot Street in Dublin, a bardic poem from the 15th century. Carswell published in uh, the English, you know, in a normal Roman font, but Elizabeth had given money for the creation of a special font for the Irish language. And here we see the special font used probably for the first time. Again, it's interesting that, that uh, in the same way Carswell though he does complain about the native literati not doing enough for the church and people wasting their time reading stories of the Fian and the Tuatha Dé Danann instead of the word of God. He's still clearly very comfortable with native vernacular literature. And it's interesting that the first efforts to print in, in by Protestants in Dublin were printing a 15th century poem by a Franciscan. Um, and a bardic poem, one of these, you know, uh, custodians of the traditional learning of the hereditary schools. But there's nothing in the poem that a reformer wouldn't approve of. It's a nice, you know, religious piece. Well, I say nice, it's a sort of depressing piece about the end of the world. Um, but it also may represent your Protestants as they, if you like, enter the game of literary production in Irish, laying a claim to 
the earlier literature, laying a claim to religious literature that predates the Reformation in Ireland, connecting with the prestige register of bardic poets and that literature that was so dominant for uh, centuries in, in manuscripts. The first major publication the same year is uh, Sean O'Carna's Abidul Gaedge, I guess, Catechisma. Sean O'Carna was Cambridge educated, a native speaker of Irish, but not a descendant of a bardic family or, you know, as far as we know, he had no direct connection to any of these hereditary learned families. His, his book is, as advertised in the title, it's sort of a two-parter. In the first part, he gives a brief introduction on how to read Irish. And in the second part, he translates uh, a short catechism from the English uh, Book of Common Prayer as published in 1559. The first part, this brief guide to reading Irish shows that he certainly had studied uh, traditional bardic material on the uh, Irish language and how to read it. You know, He uses, for example, um, the traditional bardic names for the letters like Alm, Be, Cowl for A, B, C. But he does things that we see in some other sources associated with Protestants around this period. He reorganizes, say, the traditional Irish alphabet, which begins not ABC, but BLN, but he reorganizes it to the standard ABC. He also brings in comparisons with Latin and Greek, but it's still very much versed in traditional bardic terminology and makes quite a few references to uh, um, you know, the, the, the bard, he makes a particular big reference to bardic poets saying, I've only given you a taster here of learning about the Irish language. And if you want to find out more, go talk to bardic poets, because it's their job to explain these things, not my job. And on the whole, his language is quite close to, you know, good, as we'd say, cor good, correct, literary early modern Irish. But he does have a few howlers as judged by the standards of bardic grammarians. For example, Diana, right, uh, he will do. A bardic grammarian would tell you it has a few negative forms, a few variant forms, but one of them would be Niyungana. But we find Niyana, which would be a big no-no for a bardic grammarian, and Niyina, uh, which probably reflects the spoken form in Connacht at that time, and indeed it would still be a, an acceptable uh, uh, form today. Uh, those are lapses, if you like, from uh, uh, the, the more high register uh, of writing Irish. But on the whole, in morphology, syntax, it's quite close to, you know, a, a, a conservative but accessible uh, literary register. Carswell, so our first, our pioneer in 1567, he's been praised as a translator. His style is, is, is native and vigorous, and the translation itself is very successful. O'Carna has not been praised. He, he's been described as, his style has been described as inelegant. He doesn't seem to have been a strong writer. He uses alliteration very sparingly. In general, his style doesn't vary very much. On the other hand, you could, in his defense, say he doesn't actually have much to work on. He has a, it's a, you know, there's, there's, there's less opportunity for him to show his range in a text like that. But also we know from later sources that O'Carna was involved in the early stages of translating the New Testament, the, the, the very text for which Elizabeth had given the money for this font that we see in use here. And it may be that even at this stage, he was 
practicing a style of translation that was aiming to be as close as possible to the original and not giving himself permission to drift too far from the text uh, to be more flowery or uh, um, to embellish in any way that might have made it seem more vernacular, but have taken it too far away from the original. So 1567, the first book in Irish appears, 1571, Dublin finally catches up, but we're still no closer to the New Testament, which is what was supposed to uh, 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 come out, one assumes fairly soon after Elizabeth gave money for the project in 1563. Irish had been introduced to print, a register had been refined that was vernacular, that was literary, a new font had been developed, both of the previous publications were, as far as we know, solo efforts. There wasn't a team behind it. For the New Testament project, however, we do know that different people worked at it together and at different times. Sean O'Carna, who we've already met, was involved in the early stages, as was uh, Nicholas Walsh, the Bishop of Ossory, who was murdered in 1585. But so far as we know, nothing really happened or not much progress was made until the foundation of a little place called Trinity College in 1592. And that seems to be when the real work of translating uh, took off. So um, uh, uh, the main name associated with uh, the project is William Daniel, or in Irish, Liam O'Donnell, uh, from Kilkenny, again, a native speaker of Irish. Trinity Monday isn't too far away. Eliam O'Donnell was one of the first scholars of the college. And in 1593, he was elected a fellow. So in a few weeks time, when there are scholars and fellows elected uh, uh, for this year, they, you know, they follow in, in August footsteps. Uh, another major name associated with the translation is uh, Fargon Anim in Irish, or Nehemiah, when he was, uh, 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 appears in English, O'Donnell line. He, his surname shows that he was a, a member of a traditional learned family, a bardic family. We don't know whether he himself ever practiced poetry. He was educated in Cambridge, a native of, of County Galway. He eventually, in 1595, became Archbishop of Tuam. Another uh, name associated with the project, at least for the early years, was Mwilinog Macbruidi. We know he was a practicing bardic poet. Uh, from County Clare and uh, a, a distinguished uh, bardic poet. At a later point in the project, a man called Donal Og or Higgin became involved. Again, his surname connects him to a famous bardic family. It's possible, he was probably a native of County Galway, it's possible that he is the same as a, as a Donal Og or Higgin who appears in an English source in 1590. And in that source, he is described as a gentleman. Now, if he were a practicing poet, we would expect him to be called a rhymer. So he may not himself have been a practicing bardic poet, but he was steeped, presumably, in the bardic milieu. And his qualifications of the language were praised in the preface to the New Testament, which eventually came out. MacBruidi is praised as a knowledgeable person in the Irish language in that new college, in the new college. Uh, near Dublin. Of course, Trinity was founded near Dublin. And O'Higgin uh, was given the task of transcribing uh, a chunk of the New Testament 
the rare Oem Agus Kirth Nagailke, right? According to Oem, now in technical terminology in this period, Oem does not mean the Oem that you see on stones. It's the, the, the technical term for the written form of Irish, the correct form of writing the language. So he was given the task of writing the, the, a chunk of the New Testament according to Irish orthography and so the correct usage of Irish. Even with, the, you know, with this team involved, we know that the, certain, that the project did run into trouble, there were breaks. Uh, it, it seems to have got, got going properly when college was founded, but there were delays. There was a, a, an argument with the original printer who was actually printing in college. By 1597, they had printed up as far as um, uh, Luke chapter six. And the printer, probably unhappy with his terms of employment, actually tried to sneak out and steal a bunch of furniture from college. And uh, this caused delays. At that point, the Gospels had been translated in the Acts of the Apostles, and they had been written out and revised, but the rest had not yet uh, been written out and revised. So there were different delays and different strata in the preparation of the translation. We know that they worked off the, the Greek, the Textus Receptus, uh, but they also had the benefit of, of Latin and English translations. And the translation itself has been praised as being a really fine work of, of scholarship. Now, as for finding the right Irish, we've Carswell and O'Carna are two pioneers. They weren't part of the sort of the bardic milieu, and they still managed to produce good, you know, literary Irish appropriate uh, to their to their task. This project had the benefit of a bardic poet on the staff, Maileen Og, which seems like great news. Here you have a real authority in the language who can, you know, uh, help them write really good, really correct Irish. But of course, there's always the danger that the Irish might be too correct, because the sort of Irish that a bardic poet would write uh, was, you know, as I say, a very high register and quite different from ordinary speech. For example, the accusative is, is still kept distinct from the nominative uh, with a direct object in classical modern Irish, the, the bardic register. That would mean that, for example, in this citation here, right, on will to squeal to over me. Right? Art thou loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife, nor here ban. Now, a bardic grammarian would tell you, but that should be nor here vni. We know that because, uh, first of all, that would be the normal usage in poems. Right? We also know, however, that at least since the 14th century, that was already purely literary. That wasn't something people would, would normally say. We know that because in the bardic grammatical tracts, the bardic grammarians criticize the use of the nominative for the accusative. They give examples to say that is unrame, that is lack of inflection, right? Uh, you shouldn't use that. In fact, they use quite a vulgar example to illustrate the incorrect usage in the 14th century uh, tract on, on flaws that I've given you there at the bottom of the slide. So the danger of having a bardic grammarian on staff is that they might make the Irish too correct and therefore no longer intelligible to a wider audience. And I think it's to the credit of the translators of the New Testament that though they had access to this higher level of register, they elected not to use it. And since they had the expertise, it must have been a decision. You know? 
We'll see when the uh, Franciscans on the continent begin their counter-reformation publishing efforts a few years after the Protestants, their Irish is actually much closer to the Bardic Register and would have Nauhir Vini instead of Nauhir Ban, uh, which takes it a good distance away from ordinary speech. I mentioned that uh, the translation was carried out in stages. Uh, there's still work to be done on the actual language itself and what we can call fault lines between the different stages of translating. In a pioneering article, Alva O'Curroin has pointed out that there are two ways of expressing in the Irish of this period, it is written. Right? One using this prepositional construction, a ta erna scriva, and the other using a verbal adjective, right, a ta scriva. In the bits of the, of the New Testament that we know were translated by 1597, those two constructions are about 50-50 right, in, their, in their frequency. After 1597, the second one totally dominates. Right? The, the first one almost completely disappears. And we know from a 17th century grammar of Irish and Latin that the first was thought to be the correct one, the one that the learned would use, and the second was thought to be more colloquial. So there's some evidence that after 1597, um, the, the uh, Irish New Testament gets a little bit more colloquial. Part of the reason being uh, two of the members of the project, Fargan Animal Donalon and Waylene Og McBrother, had probably gone at that stage. They left the project. Another interesting case where the, 15, the, the, the bit translated after 1597 is distinct from the bit before is in this dialect feature that really begins to spread in Irish, the different tenses and, and moods of a verb will be formed on different stems. And in some verbs, the difference can be quite dramatic. On top of that, you can have a distinction in compound verbs between deuterotonic forms that have this unstressed preverb and then uh, prototonic forms where uh, the verb is, is stressed on the first syllable. So this can lead to some pretty you know, uh, big divergences between forms. So in the future, you have the yena, I will do, and the negative of that should be niungana, right? Whereas this is with the verb to do, obviously. The neem then is I do, and niyenum is, right, I do not do. But in Connacht Irish, and still today, the dependent form, as we call it, of the future, that niungana form, with the ng vocalized and compository lengthening, so you get niyena, that form actually spreads, it becomes generalized as a dependent form. And a bardic grammarian would not allow that, they would really disapprove of it. But interestingly, in the post-1597 chunk of the New Testament, we find this general use everywhere. So the, the Bible becomes a little bit more colloquial, a little more uh, regional after that. The fact that it happens when two individuals leave, well, we know one left and the other presumably left, um, suggest that this wasn't a decision. This, it, it's unlikely that they would have decided to translate one part this way and another part a different way. It has to do more with the available talent. And this is one of the challenges in attempting to assess the decisions made by uh, uh, scholars in forming the correct register for printed material at this time. How much was deliberate and how much was a divergence caused by the available talent, perhaps not having the same opinions or not having the same maybe capabilities as others. Uh, interesting, by the way, when uh, William Daniel, uh, 
the, the main translator, if you like, of the New Testament, he went on to publish the, the Book of Common Prayer. And he was a fellow of Trinity College, and he took essentially research leave in 1605 from Trinity to go into Connacht to get help translating. And that's interesting because here you have a native speaker, obviously literate and well-educated, but he still needed assistance in translating. It's not something, being a native speaker is not enough. And he probably went to consult Fargan and O'Donnellyne, who was at that stage Archbishop of Tuam. And interestingly, the language, suddenly that Erna Scriva construction, that, that first construction at the top of the page, in the uh, Book of Common Prayer, that's suddenly back. It's everywhere. And that's probably O'Donnellyne's influence, and he probably actually began the translation. But the, this general jung, this dean thing is still there. So it raises interesting questions about who was doing what, who, if you like, brought what to the table in these translations. I'll just very briefly um, wrap up going through some of the big milestones that happened um, subsequently. Um, we've seen 1571, we have now a brief grammar of Irish and a catechism. Then we have 1602, the New Testament. 1608, we get the Book of Common Prayer. Then we get the, if you like, the Catholic response coming from the continent, first in Antwerp and then in Louvain. And interestingly, where in the Protestant publications, it's very much dominated by outsiders, people who weren't uh, from hereditary families, from bardic schools. Yes, some are involved, but the leading names are, if you like, laymen, right? On the other hand, in the Catholic printing, the two big names, particularly the early years of the Franciscan printing project in Antwerp and Louvain, are both bardic names, Ohoasa, Gillibreed or Bonaventura Ohoasa, and Flachry O'Mill Hunnera. And the first Gillibreed Ohoasa is a very accomplished poet. And in the Irish that they write, it's, it's generally a little more conservative, a little closer to a bardic standard than the Irish that you see in Protestant sources. And in fact, we have a, a review in 1618 by uh, A. MacAngel, who published a tract on penance um, in uh, Louvain in 1618. And he refers to, it's a nice joke, I suppose, he refers to the Book of Common Prayer as Lauer Ifern, right? Uh, Book of Hell, which is sort of a play on Lauer Afrin, uh, which is a, a missile. And he's not only offended by the doctrine in them, he's also offended by the language. And he talks about how, how incorrectly they're, they're written. And then very cheekily, he goes on to say, well, because they're allowed writing correctly, I'm allowed writing correctly, so I don't have to adhere to the standard because the Protestants didn't, even though they should have, because you know their uh, uh, books are full of errors. And it's interesting to note, even though he claims to be writing in this very incorrect Irish, this sort of colloquial Irish, um, his own Irish is quite conservative and contains forms that are almost certainly purely literary. For example, in criticizing Protestant publications, he uses the chershad, right? They put. Now that should ending is almost certainly purely literary at this period. And you never encounter it in Protestant works, where you get the ordinary, and it's still in some dialect of Irish, would be the ordinary form, the chorudar. Right, that's, if you like, the bog standard colloquial form. But the Franciscans are always pitching it at this higher register. And they too have clearly thought about their register. They're aware of the Protestant register and are making conscious decisions to be more conservative. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem that the New Testament, for all the effort that went into it and all the delays, it doesn't seem to have prospered and to have met a, a warm reception. In 1624, James I was, was uh, uh, forced to uh, order that it be used in Irish-speaking congregations, which again suggests that it wasn't. 
Only 500 copies were printed, but in 1628, there were still copies to be had and 12 copies were donated to college. So it's, it's unfortunate uh, uh, from the point of view of all the reformers who put all of this effort into developing a register and, and uh, the scholarship that underlay the, the um, uh, uh, translation. The failure of the New Testament to really be taken off and become a canonical text and influence the Irish language of subsequent generations probably has to do more uh, with the general failure of the Reformation and the failure of the Church of Ireland to really embrace the vernacular rather than uh, inadequacies on the part of the translation or inadequacies on the part of the register. Um, Interestingly, it does seem that there was a fall off in literacy as the 17th century went on. We saw Carswell boasting, well, uh, sort of boasting about how he only has the Irish of an ordinary person, you know, uh, and then going on to, to, to say, you know, that very few people have the correct usage. But he still obviously had a high level of Irish. Similarly, O'Carnett doesn't belong to a bardic family, yet he's able to write quite good Irish. O'Donnell, a university educated man, but not a bardic man. Yet, you know, only 75 or so years later, 1679, Narcissus Marsh has just become Provost in Trinity. He summons the Irish-speaking scholars of college to him. There was a quota that there should be at least 30 uh, natives, uh, uh, as, as the term was. And he found that most scholars in Trinity in 1679 could speak Irish, but none could read or write it. Of course, in the 17th century, the Bardi schools are collapsing, the traditional learned families are going out of business, as it were, and the status of the Irish language is changing. In a way, you could argue that the New Testament simply arrived too late. A register was uh, created, arising out of Carswell efforts and then O'Carney's efforts. But by the time the translation was actually affected, the status of the language was changing so completely uh, the the uh, uh, like politics within the Church of Ireland was no longer favourable to uh, the use of Irish, and it simply didn't succeed as a result. Anyway, I'd hoped, I'm afraid time has gotten away from me, I'd hoped to briefly go through the rest, but I think I'd better leave it there, and she can always have me back another day, and uh, allow you to ask some, some questions or uh, uh, make some comments. I think you're still muted. Sorry, Clemens. <laughs> uh, th thank you. Thank you, Michal, for this really fascinating paper on language translation, religion, language politics, and, and, and the Irish situation. Uh, I learned a lot from it. Um, uh, as you can see, well, you can also open the F&A uh, button. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, if you could answer the question here, just read them first. Uh, so because I, I guess our listeners cannot see them. So read them first and then you're welcome to answer them. Uh, Lisa Lambert has two questions for you. This is sort of fun. I feel like I'm Claire Byrne, you know, answering questions, people texting into the radio. Um, so what does Clolista translate to? Clolista uh, was coined by Richard Sharp based on the Irish word Lista, literally book list, which is the Irish word for bibliography. So he thought, well, if we're doing a bibliography of print, Lauer list is bibliography, well, we'll have Clo list as print list. Uh, so that's where it came from. He was very proud when we first began working on the project. We tried to get the word out to people uh, to send us information if they had it, to let us know about collections. And uh, when you Googled Clo list, the only thing that came up was this word that we had created. So it was a great sort of marketing tool that we had coined this phrase. The second question that Lisa Lambert asked is, uh, is there any ex libri information on text in Clolista? Yes, whenever we were, we tried as far as possible 
uh, to to check um, the copies that were available to us. And we have recorded uh, ownership and uh, notes. And that can be particularly intriguing. And um, there's a, an interesting article again by Richard about what we can learn from ex libri inscriptions about how the Franciscans in the 17th century actually got uh, disseminated their publications. So it is it is in there uh, and the big name should be captured in the index as well. Do we have more questions? Okay, um, well, I'm not going to read out the praise because that's... that's <laughs> I cannot see. I think we have answered it. I think you have to go, unfortunately, Mike. Michal. I do, but I might just because I just rushed the last, but I just wanted to say... Um, Again, again, I might come back another day and talk about the Psalms and the Old Testament because they have their own very complex story. But just to say there has been a historical neglect in researching 17th century Protestant stuff. We have no academic editions of any Protestant material published in the 17th century, these, these printed books. And I hope in the coming years to start a project to get this stuff edited, annotated, grammatical analysis, glossaries and so on uh, as a linguistic tool and also as a contribution to Irish history and it's but it's work that Trinity scholars should be in the forefront of because Trinity is so closely associated with the history of the Irish language and print so on that I'm afraid I, I have to leave you so but uh, thank you all for coming <laughs> okay I'm sorry we cannot answer all questions you can direct them uh, to Michal directly uh, it's fascinating we have so many thanks sent to you from Anya Sweeney from University College Cork um, uh, there's a question in Irish. Uh, I'm sorry, my Irish is non-existent. Uh, you uh, in, in the chat. So oh, yeah, well, actually, I just so I can't resist. There, there is a question here in the chat uh, uh, from the Nihono Canada about the Cathbrack. Yeah, the, the Cathbrack was a very popular uh, spelling book in uh, the 19th century, a Protestant spelling book. And uh, the first edition wasn't called the Cathbrack, but they were eventually called Cathbrack. And some of them ran. They had print runs of thousands and thousands of copies. Uh, and there are, I mean, more than 20 editions, which have thousands and thousands. Um, but Cathbrack came from just a particular example in it. One of the spelling examples was Cathbrack, the speckled cat. And that became a nickname for the Protestant spelling book. And then for anybody who converted and became Protestant, you could be a Cathbrack. Uh, but I, on that note, I will leave. So <laughs> sorry. Uh, thank you all. There's a question from Maureen uh, Juncker, Kenny, uh, uh, but unfortunately we don't have the time. I'm sorry for this, uh, Michal needs to go. We are all very excited uh, to have him as a new colleague on board uh, at Trinity College at the School of Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies uh, at our wonderful Irish department. Um, a cordial uh, goodbye to all of you. Thanks for joining. And in two weeks time, we are going to have the Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.